There's a little outline on the back uh, of your little sheets. I hope you find that helpful as we go through uh, this passage together. Let me just move this a second. That's great. The free state of Congo lost 50% of its population at the beginning of the 20th century. It's 8 to 10 million people died in the genocide there. 1914 to 18, you know, the First World War. 30 to 40 million people died. Trench warfare comes to its end, but chemical warfare begins. 1917 to 22, Russian uh, civil war. 7 to 9 million died. They had two years of respite in Russia, and then Stalin came to power. And then 20 million people die under his regime for not um, adhering to the communist uh, beliefs and so on, communist rule. Many died in the gulags of uh, Siberia or on their way on the road of bones, now called the M56. 1939 to 1945, Second World War, 60 to 65 million people die. And 60% of those uh, died as the civilian population rather than uh, comrades of war in the armed forces. Atomic warfare has developed, which pretty much defines warfare and uh, political wrangling for the next 50 years. Now, those five events are what historians commonly describe as the big five of the 20th, 20th century. And never in the whole sweep of history has there been a time when the death toll has been so great. Think of all of those lives. Russia alone, who's most hard hit, 50 million people die. Think of all the pain. The pain of the dying soldier, of course, and the bombed civilian. But think also of the pain of loss in families and communities. Think of the scale of those conflicts. Think of the magnitude of the horror and the loss. And now try and put that to a song. How could you express the pain? Some are all the emotions of such a global experience. Now, what kind of tune would your song have? I guess it would be a minor key. Well, that is what we've just had read to us in Psalm 2. Because it's a song. Uh, it wasn't sung to us because the accompanying music was for a particular culture and time. But the words remain because they're the eternally inspired words of God. But, but Psalm 2 is a song and it tells of the most global conflict of all history and everyone is involved when this was written, it was specifically referring to the Assyrians and the Egyptians who were the superpowers of the time. But it seems that in this conflict, uniquely everyone who is conspiring, we see in verse 1, who's plotting and taking their stand, gathered and united. But who are they united against? It's against God. They're uniquely united in that one thing. They're united against God and his anointed. And I want to show you tonight that I don't think things have changed very much. I want to show you how contemporary what we're reading is. David, the writer of this song, not only describing, you see, the hearts and the minds of the world in his time, 
uh, we, hear, we see here in this text, which is over two and a half thousand years old, I think we see that even today, the whole state and condition of the human race is set on conspiring and plotting against the Creator God, the Lord and his anointed King. I want to show you how that's true in the text, but I also want to show equally how that is true for you and me today in our own hearts. So to our first point then, it's on the outlines. Firstly, they take their stand against God. We see that in verses 1 to 3. We see all those nations and peoples take their stand. Why? Because they want freedom. You see that very much in verse 3. As they say, let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. They want freedom from God and his king. And you see how they view God and his rule. They depict serving him as being a slave in chains. And I guess that's how many people view God and his supposed rule in their minds today. But I want us to think, what are these people asking for? They're asking for freedom away from God's rule and authority in their lives. But they're also asking for freedom away from God in his attributes of all his power in creation, in sustaining this world. One preacher said, put it like this, it's like saying, I want to be free from oxygen and the tyranny of breathing. Uh, because God is the giver of all good things that we enjoy. And I guess the problem in our culture is that Many have divided the authority of God and and they kind of pick and choose, don't they? What he can rule over in their lives. So some may believe that God creates, some. Therefore it's fine to accept his authority in creation and all the provision that we get in that creation. So many good things. But that's as far as it goes, thank you very much God. But with respect to authority over us and the way that we live our lives... Well, it seems acceptable to many that if God can have authority over lives, if we have subjected ourselves to that authority, so if we've become his followers, if we are Christians, that's okay if we subjected ourselves to his rule. But it is totally unacceptable that God should have authority over humanity as a whole in creation. Because surely God must respect different peoples, cultures, religious beliefs and so on. Surely they must be free from his rule. Now the peoples of verse 3, I suppose they're a bit kind of freedom fighterists, aren't they? Uh, they? They seem utterly legitimate in our culture. Uh, it's actually God who seems so demanding, so oppressive. I mean, think of chains and fetters. Fetters are simply those, those manacles that go around wrists and ankles if you were a slave. But these images suggest God is the tyrannical one. God is the one who is completely out of touch. God is the one who is culturally irrelevant. He is the oppressor. We even see this kind of stand within the church today. So if something in the Bible, for example, seems slightly unpalatable to our culture around us, There are portions of the church that feel at liberty to just say, I don't want that, I don't want to hear that. And they liberalise and take their stand against God and his anointed. 
But I want us to question ourselves and ask, are we any different from that? The brilliance, I think, of this psalm, and of course the whole of the Bible, um, this psalm actually acts as an introduction to the whole 150 psalms, but I think the brilliance of it lies in the fact that it speaks to a point in history but it speaks as it echoes down through the ages to today, as the whole Bible does, inspired by God, and his spirit works through it. So I guess we can hear in ourselves, look at verse 3, let us break our chains, we say, and throw off our fetters. I think we've all heard those words before, haven't we? Now the plotting kings and, and conspiracy for freedom, I think is in every single one of us. However much we know of God's kindness and good rule, not a day goes by where we don't consider throwing off these chains. This, of course, resonates with our culture, with all the suspicion of authority that we see around us. I mean, just look at the demonstrations over the last week or so. Can we trust anyone to run this country legitimately and appropriately? Can can we break off the chains of their rule? We have such a suspicious view of, of authority at the moment in our culture. On the other end of the spectrum, what do we actually think about freedom? Uh, do we really want a completely free society with anarchists thinking it's completely legitimate to damage property and injure people? Very small, extreme. Freedom, I think, is quite a confused notion in our country at the moment. I'm not sure we know when freedom should begin and end. So, currently at the moment in in Parliament, it should, uh, people who have, uh, murderers who are in jail, for example, um, have the opportunity to vote in a democracy. I'm not making assertions about this, I'm just saying we are in flux about these issues of freedom. Should bankers have the freedom to determine their own bonuses when they are running banks which are 80% state-owned banks now? Do we really want complete freedom in our country? Do we really want complete freedom from God? Throwing off those fetters. Well, the chains of God, if you like, say, uh, well, you should love your neighbour as yourself. Oh, the fetters of God, if you like, the bonds of his rules, say that we should be faithful and selfless and sacrificial and giving and they hold us back from envy and anger and lust. Oh, how oppressive we say. But we love, don't we, to shout freedom. Uh, To break these chains and fetters. Now, I'm, I'm not trying to make this sound, this freedom sound really attractive because the Bible tells me I don't need to make it sound attractive because we all think it is. Very attractive indeed. Now, verse 3 describes this global conspiracy against God, and we are playing our part to propagate it. Every one of us. We're all trying to overthrow God to some degree in our lives. And we see in this little second bit how God reacts to that. It leads us to this next verse, on to our second point. You've got picture the scene, you've got all these armies, all these peoples, all these great leaders, and they're literally, the old word, I think it's in the footnote, they rage against God. That word conspire, rage, is the same. Therefore, what he's trying, the writer's doing, he's likening us to the sea, the raging sea, always moving, 
always kind of restless, always this undercurrent of rebellion in our hearts to break off the chains of God's rule. And in your middle class indifference, if that is you, don't be deceived into thinking that you're not trying to break away from God's rule. Oh, you may not rage as a stormy sea, to use that metaphor, but there can be very dangerous undercurrents, can't there? Oh, we still cry out for freedom. We just do it in a more pleasant accent. That's all. And God's reaction? You've got the whole Assyrian and Egyptian might in front of him. And they're taking their stand against God. It is utterly huge and vast. That's the picture we should have in our minds. Any human opposition to this vast army would just cower and weep and probably run away with worry at the prospect of facing this onslaught. And we kind of expect that with God, don't we? God just will go into his cubbyhole because the whole world takes its stand. And with all this opposition and threat to his rule, surely there's some concerning God. Surely there's some kind of sleepless nights. But look how God reacts to the most powerful, global, mighty stand against him. Verse 4. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. Now the Lord scoffs at them. So to our second point, God scoffs at them and installs his king. I, I guess you see in that, uh, give us time to explain it, but you see in that a huge confidence that God has. But that emotion, that reaction of laughter in the face of the world's opposition can only be understood if you understand the utter, raw, huge power of God. My youngest boy, um, it's called Zach, he's age five now, um, but a few years back, he went, as most boys do, two, three, bit of a testosterone leap in their bodies, you know. He, get, he went through quite a stage of getting quite aggressive. Um, and uh, if things didn't go his way, and it could be the most small, you know, the smallest thing, it's like, I didn't get a banana for dinner, that could tip the balance. And suddenly he would turn into this raging monster. And um, he would lash out. I mean, and we're talking good punches here. And um, on a number of occasions, I would just have to put my hands on his shoulders. But he wouldn't stop. He would still be lashing out, trying to hit me as much as he possibly could, or anything that got in his way, any person, anything. It didn't matter. And it sometimes took him a number of minutes to realise how pointless it was to try and fight. And also how stupid and silly he looked, just lashing into midair. Uh, you tried very hard as a parent in those moments to not laugh at your child because you know it might exacerbate the situation. But I have to say, once or twice, it, it did kind of bring me to a little chuckle behind my hand. <clears throat> I'm actually just coughing. It's fine, though. Yeah, and as you do. I guess we see something of that here. The peoples and the nations, with all their might, are nothing before God. And the response of God shows how ridiculous the stand is. But the laughing and scoffing isn't demeaning. Uh, rather, the stand is demeaning. The image of God laughing just shows the futility of the peoples and nations in plotting to break free 
from God and shows they provide absolutely no threat to him whatsoever. But God is not the bully laughing. Don't get that picture in your minds. He's not just flexing his kind of divine muscles here. What we see is this here is a very unusual blend, if you like, because we've never fully experienced this. He is the God who has all the might of the overwhelming bully, but he is completely right at the same time. So what is God's response? Look at verse 5 and 6 if you can. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I've installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. Look at the response. And I guess the appropriate response for us is concern. There's rebuke. There's anger. The right and just wrath coming our way is terrifying. And we like to ignore verse 5, don't we? I mean, we would love to just rub that out. But that is the terrifying reality of God. Stand against him and you will be terrified. I can't really water that down for you. I'm sorry. I'd love to be able to. But that is the truth from God's word. But it does seem strange to us in a democracy that right anger and terrifying wrath are worked out in this way. It seems like there's a coronation going on. But kings were a very significant part of God's working in history amongst his people of, of dealing with rebellion. Initially it occurred to the kings of Israel, of David and Solomon and so on. You can read those in, in Samuel and Chronicles and Kings uh, in, the, in the history part of the Old Testament. Uh, but it didn't involve a crown. Uh, that's a, kind of a later invention of our times. But rather it more involved a sprinkling of oil. And that's why, hence, you have the, the anointed one of verse 2. When you were installed as a king, oil was placed on your head. That was the way you were anointed for the role. But they were God's appointed means to quash your rebellion. But more, as more and more time went by, people realised there would be another king, uh, another anointed one, who is the real and the final answer to all this plotting and rebellion of God's people. So we're going to introduce him now. We get to point three. And it may come as a surprise, but Jesus is that anointed one, the judge of all. We see that in verse seven and nine. The, the, the term anointed one is also translated in the Hebrew as Messiah, later on in the Greek as the Christ, which kind of helps us make sense of this verse. Let's look at verse seven if we can. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I've become your father. So the king who will perfectly deal with the rebellious um, conspiracies of the world is the Son of God, as declared here. And this verse shows us that the Son, of, or the King here, the Anointed One, has equal authority with the Father. You see that there? The, they're this inseparable family unit. If you know one, you know the other. If you accept one, you accept the other. If you reject one, you reject the other. You can't pick and choose, if you like. You can't divide between them. But look at the powers bestowed on the king. Verse 8. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. Look at the eternally reaching power. Uh, and the scope is huge that's bestowed on this anointed king, God's son. 
I mean, even if you just went into language and statistics of today, that involves, what is it, 6.8 billion people in this world today who come under his authority. That's just today, not throughout history. It's just that the landmass, the ends of the earth there, is 149 million square kilometres, apparently. That's the landmass of the world. But, you know, that's as far-reaching as it goes. It, what a Christmas present to get from your daddy, which is essentially what this is. And we're told here that the king, God's son, owns and has authority over everything in all time. Just stop there a second. Just think. Remember, this is a song. Now can you imagine singing this song something like 2nd century B.C.? Okay, the Romans are gathering steam, they're coming in and they're about to take over and rule that area, God's people, Israel and so on. I mean, can you imagine the Romans singing this back to them and saying, where's your king? Where's this this ruler? When the apostles were teaching people about Jesus after his death and resurrection, it's surprising that they used this psalm more than any other psalm in the Old Testament, any other Old Testament passage, in particular these verses that we're reading now. And what they did is they showed the peoples and and nations God's response to rebellion in this world. That is, he said, they installed a king. Yeah, fine. But the Romans would probably just retort and say, but we crucified him. We sorted him out. It seems to make absolutely no sense. But Paul helps us, I think, in Acts chapter 13. If you want to turn to it, please do. Acts chapter 13. If anyone's got a page number, please do shout that out. I've got the page. Acts chapter 13. 1107, if you want to. Acts chapter 13. Paul here um, tells the Jews gathered that Jesus is the king that they've been waiting for. And he's unashamed that Jesus has been unjustly killed on a cross. And he explains why in chapter 13, verse 29. Follow with me, verse 29. Uh, Sorry? 1108. Sorry. Acts chapter 13, verse 29 following. When they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the tree, that's the cross, and laid him in the tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he was seen by those who had travelled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. We tell you the good news. What God promised our fathers, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second psalm, you are my son. Today, I have become your father. Where is the king? Oh, he's real. I mean, everyone knew that this had happened. And he died on the cross. But Paul is showing them in this text here that today, the today written there, he's quoting from Psalm 2, that day of coronation he's speaking of there, was the day that Jesus was raised from the dead. He always was the Son of God, from even before the beginning of creation. But the day that he defeated death and rose to new life, was the day that he was crowned. Or anointed, if you like, in that way. Anointed as the king. He was the one they'd been waiting for. So Jesus, of course, is the one speaking in verses 79 of Psalm 2. He's the one who's anointed in verse 2. And he's the one who owns and 
has authority over the whole world and therefore all of us. But look at what Jesus is appointed to do in verse 9. Here comes the big shock. As the risen king, look what his rule is. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. But Paul, if you remember, back in Acts chapter 13, flip back to um, Psalm 2 now if you want to, but in Acts chapter 13 he describes this as good news. Iron scepter, dashing us, good news. Are you sure? Because Jesus is depicted here as the brutal judge. And the comparison couldn't be any more stark, could it? Jesus the judge with the iron scepter. And we are just pieces of pottery. It's carnage, the image is. There's no competition. He will smash his enemies. If you like, we're a cheap Tesco value plate. You know, that you get for 50p or something like that. And he comes in with an iron crowbar and dashes us to pieces. It seems really disturbing, doesn't it? Jesus, the rod of iron. We use that, don't we, as a cliche for brutal rulers around them. They rule with a rod of iron. It's interesting, isn't it? Where we get that from. That phrase finds its origin in baby Jesus, meek and mild. I hope this is, if you like, redefining your view of who Jesus really is. The crushing reality of the psalm is that if you align yourself with the peoples and the nations of verse 1, then Jesus, from verse 9, is your destroyer. This is so offensive, isn't it? In our permissive culture. But I want to encourage you, please, please, don't be stubborn. Look at this passage and understand where this puts you in relation to Jesus. And I want you to say, I want to tell you, don't feel that you're alone in this. When you get to verse 9, recognise we're all there. We're all in this together. This is an indictment of all of our lives and how we live in rebellion against Jesus and his rule. Despite all our promises to serve and follow him, if we're Christians... We're all in this. Can we even really think of Jesus in this way in our culture? I guess many of us will struggle to. Jesus the destroyer. How can this be good news as Paul describes it in Acts chapter 13? Well it can be and that's what we see in our last three verses just to close. Now you've noticed that throughout I've, I've tried to include a kind of persuasive reasons to not... Take your stand against God. That is, you know, in his rule and his authority, he's, he's life-giving, he's generous and, uh, and good. And I've only done that, to be honest, so that you stay here until now. Because I guess many of you will want to walk out. Um, do you see God's persuasive argument? Because he not used those tools in his argument. His argument is simply this. You stand against me, and I'll crush you. And that's the argument from God in Psalm 2. Therefore, he says, in these last few verses, just be wise. And and, and be warned. It's quite a persuasive argument, isn't it? It's quite simple. But it's also why it's such good news, because there is something that can be done, he's saying. The smashing, the judging hasn't happened yet. So, point four, we get to it. Listen. Be wise. Serve God and take refuge in Jesus. Let's just remind ourselves of those last three verses. 
as we close. Therefore, you kings, be wise, be warned. You rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. See, God has provided a rescue plan in his love. And his persuasive argument says, be crushed or be wise. Heed the warning. How can you be wise? Look at verse 11. Serve God with fear and rejoice with trembling. And because he's he's installed a king on this holy hill and so on, you need to make up with the king. You need to kiss the sun. Be friends with Jesus, essentially. Follow him. Follow his ways and his, his chains of obeying his word, the Bible. You want to be his friend because being his enemy, provoking his righteous anger is futile. And verse 11 is another reminder. Oh, you will be destroyed. Uh, the, the element of time comes in in verse 11. Do you see that? His wrath will flare up in a moment. Uh, therefore should be an urgency for all of us. We don't know when the time will come when time ends. And therefore, we don't know when Jesus was going to come to be the judge. But we do know at that moment in history, time will have run out. So what can we do? It just simply says at the end, that last clause, blessed are those who take refuge in him. You see, the only place to hide, if you like, from the Son who comes to judge, to dash us to pieces. The only place to hide from the Son is in the Son. The good news is found in the loving promises of God. It is that if you take refuge in Jesus, you'll find blessing with God. That is safety for eternity from the judgment that you deserve. Take refuge in the Son. Take refuge in Jesus. And that, I guess, is what many of us done, have done. But I guess it should provoke all of us. The implicit message is, tell others to take refuge in Jesus. Anyone we meet. And the last two weeks, I guess, for us as a church, have been quite busy. We've been telling other people, inviting people to hear them about Jesus. And I guess I want us to think... Um, you know, that is actually not an extraordinary time for any of us. But rather, that should be the norm. Psalm 2 might not be politically correct, but the only way is that, that we and our friends, uh, when we are in this conspiring and plotting against God and His Son, the only way that we might avoid His just judgment is by taking refuge in Jesus. And we need to do this by realising a few things. Firstly, we need to realise that we are the ones who are plotting and raging against God. And we need to realise that God is not intimidated by that whatsoever. And realise that he has established on his throne a king. A king who will smash us in his judgments if we continue to stand in rebellion against him. And we also finally need to realise that Eternal freedom comes in the chains of serving a Lord in fear. I guess we all need to humble ourselves and realise that in the refuge offered in Christ, though there may be trembling, 
there may be fear which seems so politically incorrect, doesn't it? We may also rejoice as we see in that final verse. Of course, rejoicing in the sure and the certain hope of an eternity with the Lord Jesus face to face. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. Let's pray.